This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Welcome to another episode of the Out of the Blue podcast. My name is Trish Critic, and today I'm joined by Laurent Brochard, who is the author of today's article for discussion, Critical Care Medicine, a Young, Indispensable, and Adaptive Discipline. Dr. Brochard is the Division Director for Critical Care at the University of Toronto. Thank you, Dr. Brochard, for joining us today. Thank you very much. I thought we could start off on kind of some of the things that you reflect upon in the editorial. And one thing that I thought was interesting is you talk about how critical care has changed since its inception in the early 50s. Mm -hmm. So from your perspective, what are the aspects of critical care that have evolved the most since then? How have we changed? Where have we changed the most? Uh, Thank you. I think a, a little bit of an historical perspective, and that's exactly your question, is really interesting because uh, um, that's why in the title I say it's a young discipline. Uh, sometimes people say, well, it, it takes so long to have uh, changes in clinical practice. Well, if you take some historical perspective, uh, uh, like like 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, it's very little for, for some aspect of medicine. It's, it's, it's a lot, of course, for others. I've been interested by the story of uh, ECMO, uh, extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a nice example because mm-hmm. the first ever randomized control trial conducted in critical care was uh, the ECMO study by Warren Zapol and uh, their colleagues in, uh, published in JAMA in 1970. And uh, they looked at uh, ARDS, which is still uh, <laughs> one of the most popular um, uh, research field today. And they, they randomized patients and, and the study was, was well conducted, I think, to ECMO versus conventional therapy. And it was a disaster in both arms <laughs> because uh, almost all the patients died. Uh, I think it was uh, at, at six months, like 95% uh, patient had died. So this was terrible. And it was interesting because they discussed that uh, the uh, ECMO therapy uh, did improve gas exchange, and this was their main concern uh, that uh, the ARDS is characterized by gas exchange abnormalities, so they wanted to improve gas exchange. It did it, but it did not change uh, the outcome. And, and now, uh, so, so it's like uh, 40... Uh, 45 years later, we are rediscussing ECMO and CO2 removal, but with a completely different perspective. Because we we understood that gas exchange and normalizing gas exchange to normal physiological variables uh, was wrong, was not the, uh, the appropriate mechanism. Uh, because the question was to protect the lung mm-hmm. from the risk of mechanical ventilation. So we are now using ECMO and ECHO, and, and we don't have the definitive response, but we have a first study published in The Lancet, which was positive. We have uh, a number of very attractive uh, uh, preliminary studies, which suggest that uh, you could 
deliver an ultra protective ventilation with uh, this technique with extracorporeal circulation and and potentially improve outcomes so so it's the same technique it's the same disease uh, but it's a completely different uh, it's it's a parad paradigm change a, a change in perspective because we realized that we were targeting normal physiology and that was wrong so so that's uh, that's true for many things in intensive care. We we are still driving uh, therapy based on physiology, but we understood that uh, there is a big difference between physiology and pathophysiology, which is uh, how to adapt to abnormal situations. And the uh, example of uh, the risk uh, related to vent to mechanical ventilation is, is, is a beautiful example. And of course, the ECMO studies now, which are performed uh, with similar kind of patients, have a much lower mortality than before. And, and we think because we understood this, uh, the mechanism uh, by which uh, the patients could die on mechanical ventilation. So I think it's, a, it's an interesting uh, observation. It's also interesting because uh, it reflects something else which had happened in critical care, which is the major improvement in, in the technology. Uh, there, is, there is no question that, the, for instance, the ECMO technology is, uh, is completely different. It's, it's, uh, you have portable device, uh, you need much less anticoagulation, you have much less complications. I, I'm not saying it's a perfect and we know perfectly how to use it, but uh, Clearly, the technology has uh, played an important role. Yeah, I think you raise a lot of really interesting things that came up when I was reading your your perspective piece as well. So let me um, go back to the part about physiology. I feel like a lot of people gravitate towards critical care because of their interest in physiology. Yes. And I think y you reflect on the fact that it's, it's an underpinning of all that we do in the ICU. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And yet, trying to achieve perfect numbers by physiologic principles doesn't necessarily always result in the best outcomes for patients. So how do you see that partnership between physiology and kind of staying true to physiologic principles, which I think a lot of us really like about our job, and then also balancing it with evidence from randomized controlled trials? And how do you, make, how do you balance those two things as you make decisions in the world of critical care? Because it feels like that's evolved somewhat too over the time. No, that's a, that's a key issue. And uh, I'm glad you're saying that uh, we, we, we like our job because of physiology. I fully agree uh, because we can manipulate and see how we change physiology. Um, the, the, the key question is to understand the mechanism and uh, I'm, uh, I'm obviously very favorable to randomized control trials and uh, um, to, to, to answer a question, but uh, if we don't know the mechanism, uh, we may simply say, like in the example of ECMO, well, it, this technique does not work and it's because we don't understand the mechanism. Uh, and again, it's more complicated than uh, reproducing normal physiology. So I think physiology goes beyond what we uh, simply measure in the ICU, like blood pressure or gas exchange. We, um, we have new approaches to much more complex and, let's say, microphysiology. Uh, but, but we still need to spend a lot of time at understanding the mechanism. Mm -hmm. um, 
Otherwise, we will continue to do negative randomized control trials. So, <laughs> and uh, if you if you take the success story in in critical care, like uh, let's say prone position, I think it's it's a success story in yeah. ARDS. Uh, well, if you look at the whole story, it took 15 years. It took 15 years to. Uh, understand that the mechanism was uh, a probably a redistribution of ventilation and therefore uh, protection of the lung so that you have to do very long sessions of prone uh, uh, of proning the patients uh, that it may be helpful only in the most severe patient that you need uh, training because uh, you have complication from these techniques so understanding everything took uh, like 15 years to get uh, to positive trials. So um, again, 15 years is a is a normal normal time span for uh, for having a successful discovery in uh, in 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 our field. I think. I, I think that actually that leads perfectly into something else I want to talk about with you, which I agree with you. I think proning is a great example of. A, using physiology to drive our thinking and then evolving our thinking as we kind of figure out more about it. Um, I think there's a cohort of intensivists, I know many of them, <laughs> who want things to happen faster, who would like sure. to have more discoveries. And in part of that, I think, results in early adoption. And we have some of us who are, or who are early adopters of things. And yet you just explained two examples of ECMO and proning where we had some underpinnings of maybe this will work, it didn't work, and then we kept trying and eventually we came up with the right way to do it. Yeah. What do you think of that kind of dichotomy of, wow, we really want to do something now, we're, we're action people, this cohort of folks who are early adopters and some of the things we've adopted in critical care that have not proven to be beneficial even after multiple studies versus, well, it might not work yet, but let's keep trying, keep trying, and maybe it's still going to work out. How do you reconcile that? Well, uh, I think it's, uh, first, it's, uh, we, we, we all would love to have uh, the, the, the new, uh, uh, the new magic bullet and, bullet <laughs> and being able to apply it uh, the next day. Um, however, I think uh, even if you find something which is, which is very positive, very significant, there is a big difference between uh, having the first finding and applying to, to every situation everywhere. Uh, you, 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 cite, well, you mentioned this early adoption and of course everybody has in mind uh, the uh, tight glucose control, for mm -hmm. instance. Yep. Uh, and I don't think the positive studies were wrong. I think uh, they were probably um, applied in, in specific centers, maybe using a lot of glucose, for instance. So for, for them, it, it was a very good thing to do that. And then when you just uh, try to apply the concept in a very large, uh, um, to, to, to generalize it, uh, you see that it, it's much more difficult. So, so you need these different steps, and uh, it's true that uh, we, we all tend to, to be early adapter in a way, uh, but we need to realize that uh, the application in different environments, in different organizations, with different culture, uh, can, can make the result completely different. Uh, 
I was thinking also another, I, I participated a lot to the studies on non-invasive ventilation in COPD. Mm -hmm. uh, it took quite a long time to be introduced in clinical practice, but I think that's fair, that's okay, because you need to be sure that you can do it, that you can do it properly, that you can train people, that you can recognize the good candidates. Uh, and um, and it's, um, it's a matter of testing the, the applicability and ge the generalizability of, uh, of findings in one center or only in a few centers. Yeah, and I think maybe that's the one thing that we're learning over time. Sure. It is interesting to think of critical care as being as young a field as it is. I mean, we're celebrating the 100th anniversary of the Blue Journal, but it's not even 100 years of critical care yet. It's kind of fascinating. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, um, and, 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 and again, uh, if, if, you, if you look at uh, uh, the history, you see, well, it, that's not such a long time. And uh, um, there, there, there is some other aspect of things which have changed enormously in critical care. I was uh, thinking of uh, all the, let's say, patient-centered care and, and the approach to patients. Uh, uh, including uh, the, the patient dying in the ICU. Yeah. Um, I think from the very beginning of uh, critical care, people have been thinking about uh, the intensity of therapy, uh, but but we progressively realized that we were dealing with a lot of patients who are going to die, to dealing with the patient, with their family. And this has, I would say from my clinical practice, and uh, I've been practicing in different places in the world, uh, this has enormously changed. Uh, we recently had the, a paper in the Blue Journal by um, Deborah Cook and their colleagues uh, about what they call the Three Wishes Project, which mm -hmm. is the, uh, the asking patients at the end of life in the ICU when uh, the end of life could be uh, let's say planned, uh, more or less, uh, what were their last uh, wishes. And, uh, and so they had uh, a lot of conversation with these patients, with the family, but with also all the caregivers about uh, the spirituality in, in, in the intensive care units. And uh, I, it was a fascinating uh, paper because this is, uh, this is part of our job now. And, and I think this has uh, changed uh, tremendously. That's an interesting perspective because I think there are more and more young intensivists who choose critical care partly because of that aspect of the care, yeah. the end of life and the helping families and patients through those challenging times, but it definitely has become much more of a focus. And I would argue both patient and family-centered care in the ICU has, even in the decade plus that I've been a critical care doctor, become much more uh, part of what we do all the time. Yes, and it's, it's interesting to see that... Uh, um, you know, this uh, notion that uh, we should also introduce uh, palliative care because yes. we, we, we do care for our patient, but, but we have to change the goals of care sometime and uh, giving the best palliative care um, is also part of our job. So yeah. I, I think that's interesting that, to get your perspective on how that's become more and more part of things. Um, because I, I think it I, I would completely agree. Are there areas the other are there other areas in critical care that you think are the places where we're gonna see the most growth over the next fifty years? Like where do you see us going? That's always the most difficult part of uh, of the question, right? Uh, 
how how can you predict uh, <laughs> the future? Well, uh, that's uh, well. As you know, everybody is talking about uh, more and more personalized medicine, which uh, which uh, which is not new, right? Yeah. It, it uh, it's something we we have always been doing, but uh, behind that. Uh, there are new tools and new techniques which could uh, hopefully uh, will tell us more about patients' response. I, I'm not so impressed by all the new, let's say, genetic studies. Uh, I'm more impressed by what could come from the field of uh, different omics, like proteomics, like let's say in general some biomarkers which really are lacking for a lot of our syndrome today. So if if we if we talk of uh, fifty years, I'm sure we will have much more in this field, and mm -hmm. uh, and I'm sure this will help uh, personalizing the um, the uh, management, the treatment for the patients. Mm -hmm. um, I I do think we need a, a lot more about mechanism, even if it takes a long time, even if it's uh, difficult, but. Uh, um, to, to really uh, have this personalized medicine, we, we need very good physiology. And, and I say that in a very broad term, uh, mm -hmm. physiology can be in the lab, can be, uh, uh, can be modelization, can be uh, a lot of things uh, to understand the, the mechanism. Um, there is also another field where we may see more. It's uh, about uh, artificial intelligence in general. Hmm. Uh, I, I've been working on that in the field of mechanical ventilation and I've seen a lot of reluctance from uh, from clinicians in general as something doing the, the job for you. <laughs> um, yes. And I don't think it's a, it's probably the good approach, but, but having tools helping us to integrate the, the numerous information we have in the ICU and trying to uh, to give us probabilities and uh, and uh, help for decision, uh, I think I see that as a field which will uh, which will also uh, change in the future. I think it's interesting because I think artificial intelligence and protocols in general, in a lower sense, the the loss of control people struggle with that and i think maybe right, it's right. the personalities that choose critical care that particularly don't like that i don't know but um but i hear maybe, what you're saying maybe you're, you're right. <laughs> yeah. yeah so so i i think we should uh, the work should not be focusing on replacing anybody but, <laughs> but trying to say well you have all this data well uh, we have now machine learning techniques uh, which tell well this could uh, tell you a little bit more about uh, this kind of patients and this kind of, uh, I don't know, inflammatory profile or yep. anything. So. Well, for sure, the amount of data that we have available to us is, is exponentially growing, it feels like. And so helping to bring that data together in a meaningful way seems like it'll be an important part of the future. Yeah, and probably if, if the artificial intelligence could detect what is... Uh, uh, what is only noise in the system, what is only uh, artifact, mm -hmm. that would be the first thing to do because uh, it's not because you have big data that you have good response. If uh, most of the data are of poor quality, of course, it's, uh, it will not help. But, yeah. uh, 
but working on, on detecting what are the in important and relevant signals, that, that's something interesting. Well, I've enjoyed hearing you and reading uh, what okay. you wrote, thinking about critical care kind of past, present, and future. Is there anything else that you thought was important to say about our field as we kind of reflect back on this 100th anniversary of the Blue Journal? Well, I'm uh, glad that uh, the Blue Journal is really, uh, is really the best journal in the field for critical care. And uh, we are struggling very hard to select the best paper. I'm saying very hard because we have a lot of good submission and, uh, and we can't, of course, uh, we can, of course, accept only a few of them, uh, but, but I hope that uh, readers, through the uh, original contribution, but also uh, review articles or editorials, uh, enjoy reading the journal and learning about uh, the best aspect of uh, critical care science. Well, uh, thank you so much for talking. I'm going to encourage our listeners to read your piece in the Blue Journal. They can visit the podcast homepage and access it at www.atsjournals.org. And if they want to listen to more episodes of Out of the Blue, they can visit our page on iTunes or Google Play. Thank you very much. Thank you, and thanks for everyone who's listening, and have a great day.